Hello and welcome to the second episode of the Hague Journal of Diplomacy podcast. My name is Elon Madhavji and I will be your host. Today we are honored to have with us a guest whose career at NATO headquarters in Brussels spans the last two decades. Damien Arnaud spent most of that time as head of media operations and special events, but now is with the Public Diplomacy Division as an engagement officer. Now, considering this background, it is perhaps no surprise to have him here today to discuss his practitioner's piece, How the Post-Truth Phenomenon Harms Political Dialogue Between States, that came out at the end of last year in Volume 14. His research came during his sabbatical as a visiting scholar at the German Institute for International and Security Affairs in Berlin. It is also important to mention that Damien has joined us today to speak purely from his own perspective, and his views do not represent NATO or the Institute. Damien, thank you so much for joining us. How are you today? Yeah, good morning, Ilan. It's nice to see you. Thank you. Thank you. Likewise. Um, now, just on a personal note, I consider myself very lucky uh, to get the chance to talk to you about post-truth today because uh, the research you've conducted is, uh, as far as uh, I've been able to, to dive into it, it, it's quite unique. You've had the opportunity to talk to 12 notable individuals, ranging from a former Secretary General of NATO, previous Ministers of Foreign Affairs, um, and all sorts of practitioners of diplomacy in between. And um, before we dive into your experience and, and their experiences, I think it's, it's important we get on an even playing field about what is post-truth? What are we talking about when we say post-truth? And so if I may be so bold as to take a page out of your book, you've, you've cited post-truth as the 2016 word of the year, uh, according to Oxford Dictionary. Uh, and their definition is as follows. Uh, post-truth is relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. Do you, Damien, still abide by the Oxford Dictionary uh, definition of that? Yes, I, I do. And, and we'll get uh, in the next few minutes, hopefully, into uh, how we got into, into this current situation or the current situation that was in 2016, which has only gotten significantly worse, I would suggest. Um, in the interval, but it, it was it was um, it was an interesting uh, sort of uh, genesis of this uh, of this piece that I wrote last year, and and perhaps it's helpful to just uh, go 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 back to that uh, just for a second. I mean, that was of course. it was it was the I think it was late 2018 where I I was reading a book that um, got into my hands somehow from a retired professor of philosophy in France. Um, who had written a book called La Faiblesse du Vrai, the, the Weakness of Truth. And she was saying all these things about the impact on dialogue. And it, it got me thinking, uh, because in, uh, in, uh, in my current uh, job, we have obviously a, a long history of, of, of political dialogue. And I, I and, and many other people could see how, how difficult it had become. And so my, my hunch was to try to see whether there was a link that could be made between the sorry state of dialogue, as I, I saw it, yeah, along with many others, and this phenomenon that she was describing. And so I had this hunch, essentially. And to ascertain the hunch, so to speak, and this is, I guess it's the, the, the work of any research uh, yeah. effort, I decided to go and ask for their views, uh, a number of uh, mostly former officials, but of, of, of good senior standing, as you said, former ministers, mostly, a couple of current practicing office, uh, officials, but I wanted to get their views to see whether my hunch was right. And it was extremely interesting to see that most of them, or all of them actually, 
very much agreed with the hunch, and so I felt uh, vindicated and, and decided to write about it. Okay, okay. So I, I find it curious now. So you've mentioned uh, it, it was inspired by a, a piece of philosophy, and you were curious about how that's affecting the world around you now. And I think even in the, the few minutes we've been talking now, you and I have both been um, slightly guilty of referring to it as this very modern term. And that's what I am actually curious about. I, I am not entirely convinced um, it is as new and flashy as we make it out to be, or as the Oxford Dictionary makes it out to be. Because if you dive into that definition in the Oxford Dictionary, they cite the first use of the word back in 1992 in relation to the fallout of the Watergate scandal and the Persian Gulf War. And speaking of philosophy, we can have three podcasts about uh, Nietzsche's argument about is objective fact real or is it just a product of the values that we use to shape the world around us? And that's a, that's a discussion that's been happening since the 1800s and well before. So we talk about 2016 and the explosion of post-truth. Um, my question to you is, what conditions allowed for it to explode in 2016 and what conditions allow for it to still be talked about in 2020? Yeah, Let, we, for, for, that, for, for me to answer you on this, we need to go back a little bit and first to acknowledge that, as you say, very rightly, um, politicians playing with truth is nothing new, right? Uh, so post-truth is, is, is a little bit more than uh, lies. Um, and lies are a very relative term in politics, obviously. Uh, but certainly since, since um, Machiavelli and, and possibly before, um, the use of, I mean, the playing with, with truth uh, to gain political advantage is, has been sort of um, a sort of normal practice in the political game. And, and there are interesting writings about that, actually. Um, but this is very much different. Uh, post-truth relates to the devaluing of the search for truth and the idea that there is no truth and that looking for it is actually presumptuous. That's a little bit different than, than reconciling yourself with the fact that people will not always tell you the truth. First thing. Then in terms of 2016, uh, my research went uh, and uh, I, I, I quickly saw that 2016 had, had uh, the Oxford Dictionary had named post-truth uh, one of the words of the year and so I went back and read the pieces and, and looked did a bit of research and indeed the background if you take just the last half century the background is fairly uh, simple to, to, re to relate it goes back to the post-Nixon years uh, in the United States where um, so the writers uh, say there was a sense of social fatigue with with um, with bad news uh, remember, this was after Vietnam, the president yeah. had been impeached, this was a difficult time. And so there was a tendency to accept tacitly that politicians might sometimes uh, polish the facts. And uh, Ronald Reagan, who, who is my president in many respects, you know, I'm, I'm 48, he was the president when I was a, a young kid growing up. Um, was, was, he was a very good at this. He was an actor, if you recall. Yeah, and yeah. he and the American people had sort of this very tacit, un, un, unspoken understanding that sometimes it was important to to varnish a little bit the reality, and then it went on from there, if you will, right? And then what happened is uh, the '90s and into the 9/11 uh, period uh, in the early 20, uh, 2000, 
became a very stressful period. And again, there was a reinforcement of this uh, phenomenon that I just described. Up to the point where in 2003 or four, I forget, um, around the time that we were, the American uh, so, sort of uh, social establishment was in the full uh, midst of reacting to 9-11 and there was the whole Iraq uh, sequence. Mm -hmm. And there is this interview uh, in the New Yorker, I think, where um, a White House uh, communications guy tells the journalist, you know, we're creating reality for you guys. Uh, and then when you're finished anal analyzing the reality that we've created, we'll create new reality. And there's this beginning of this hubris that becomes apparent at this time. So for, 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 for that, it's still fairly uh, traditional or classical a phenomenon, if you will, because yeah. we have basically politicians playing with reality a little bit. So far, so good. But what happens then is the, this political hubris, I call it, uh, meets... Facebook and Google, and this is when everything changes because where where we had a situation with uh, where basically authorities controlled what was what was going on, the advent of social media platforms uh, loosens that control, and uh, all of a sudden the playing with truth uh, element becomes much much more widespread, and people lose control of that, and that's what's become interesting. And I think in 2016, what happens is Basically, people, uh, or, or rather events, come to reveal the, the, the depth of what's happened. So 2016 is more a, a time of consciousness, actually, of, of a phenomenon that's been slow in, in coming. Okay, so then you would then refer to events, say, because in relation to post-truth, Brexit is a, is, a, is a name that's brought up. Trump, is a, the, the election of Trump. You would say those are moments where we were actually just made aware of the extent to which it had really rooted itself. Indeed. Okay. So then building off that, I'm curious how we've now gotten to the point where your work is talking about post-truth uh, affecting and perhaps even infecting political dialogue and diplomacy at the highest level of international relations, uh, the security sphere. How did we get there and what are the consequences of that? Yeah, thank you, Ilan. So, so political dialogue is, I had to, to decide for myself and, and do a bit of research to, to decide for myself what I, how I, I map this out. And, and political dialogue is an interesting thing. As, as, a, as a diplomat of sorts, if you will, um, we engage in diplomacy all the time. We engage in cooperative security uh, discussions all the time. Political dialogue is rather different. And so I mapped out uh, sort of a template of where things stood. For me, political dialogue is, for, for one, the foundation of both diplomacy and cooperative security discussions. So I, I used the ha uh, Habermas model, Jürgen Habermas, a German philosopher, who explains that dialogue can be performative or informative, I think it is. And so for me, if you think of a triangle with um, political dialogue as, as the base, and then on top, on the left and the right, diplomacy and cooperative security. So diplomacy, according to Kissinger, is the adjustments of differences. So when there's a problem to be solved, people engage in diplomacy. So it's performative. It's to reach uh, a goal, to solve a problem, right? That's yeah. diplomacy. Cooperative security on the, on the other side of the triangle is when people mostly agree and they want to do things together. 
So allies, partners engage in cooperative security discussions to work on program, have work programs um, unfold. Um, again, performative, they reach a goal, right? Political dialogue is very different. Political dialogue is something you engage in to map out your understanding of what's going on. To engage in a discussion with another party, a country, a state official on, on, on the other side of the table, to understand how he sees the world or she sees the world, to garner information so that your own view of the world can be uh, confirmed uh, by, by this discussion. So it's not with an objective in mind as much as it is informative in, in, uh, uh, in, in, in objective, as a sense of why you're engaging in it. And so there's very different kinds of dialogue. What I focused on and what I decided to qualify as very poor is the political dialogue. So there's a lot of diplomatic discussions going on. And, and, and actually state leaders will tell you, those I, inter I interviewed, when they engaged with uh, other state leaders, it was always to solve a problem. It was never actually to sit down and talk tranquillement, you know? Yeah. Uh, so that, that's an important difference. So then now if we introduce post-truth into this, into this dynamic you've just talked about, um, and okay, so you've talked about the, the, the problem-solving dynamic and the sitting down just to talk tranquillement, as you said. Um, what does the introduction of post-truth into one or both sides of this discussion, whether it's dialogue or diplomacy, what does that actually mean when it comes to, say, uh, large macro level security cooperation or um, dealing with geopolitical struggles or confronting great powers like Russia and China, what does that mean? So what I found is that the post-truth phenomenon that we talked about a little bit earlier has a particularly nefarious impact on political dialogue. And the reason for that is that uh, the post-truth uh, phenomenon devalues the search for, for truth and over time uh, gives people the impression that looking for truth is unimportant, presumptuous, and uh, likely to be unsuccessful. And so people become acquainted with the idea that there is no point in looking for truth. And once that has become ingrained in people's mind, all of a sudden people also devalue dialogue because why talk with the other if there's no hope of agreeing? Uh, on, on, on the definition of what's going on. And political dialogue is very much about uh, mapping the environment, understanding intent. Uh, you know, there are plenty of security intelligence organizations out there which can help define uh, capacities. But intent, measuring or identifying what the intent is, expressing your own intent, uh, in a in a sort of a, in a deterrence mind frame, is very much uh, requires dialogue. So post truth really impacts detrimentally the capacity of, of of state leaders to engage in dialogue. Okay, so so with dialogue now being uh, affected by it, um, and this obviously happening on uh, in boardrooms at tables in spheres where. Uh, at, at least from a, a quote-unquote civilian individual perspective, one almost expects dialogue to be one of the status quo mechanisms for communication. Um, what can we now expect in terms of uh, a reaction to this 
new environment we're in? Is it a matter of uh, finding an antidote to, to quell post-truth or is it a matter of getting used to this new normal and this is the way it is now and we need to find a way to operate through this, through this landscape? Yeah, thank you. I mean, the, the, the sense I got from the interviews I conducted last year with all these officials is that we cannot reconcile ourselves with this new state of, the, of affairs. And, and the reason for that is both the recognition that we've entered a new era where, you know, the rules-based international order that came out of World War II is being tested, clearly. There are a number of rising powers uh, who are testing the limits of that order, trying to shape it. And there are also the incumbent powers that came out of World War II, who, whose, um, whose history is, is very turbulent these, time, these, these days. And we, we mentioned the advent of the Trump administration. We mentioned the, the decision on Brexit. And there, are, there could be a few more that we could, we could mention. So the, the environment is very turbulent. And this uh, gives um, special value in, in engaging in dialogue. Um, so it's not it's not acceptable to to sort of reconcile oneself with with the poor state of dialogue. And the the other reason why it's not possible is that when you don't uh, dialogue, as I suggest in my piece, uh, helps people become more certain that they're they hold they're holding on to a real assessment of the situation. Mm. If you don't engage in dialogue, what I found both in discussion and in research is that you're not quite sure that you're actually looking at the right things. You cannot be certain that your assessments are grounded in, in, in facts, in, in reality. And if you lose contact with reality, uh, I mean, psychologists could go probably into this and say you become crazy, but, but for international affairs, which is what I'm interested in, the, this, the international environment becomes unstable and uncertain, unpredictable. And this is very dangerous. I mean, students of international affairs will agree this is not where you want to be because yeah, if yeah. you're in an unpredictable environment, you don't know what the reaction of people will be. If you're uh, in instability, you cannot have a economic development. Uh, it, it becomes very uncomfortable. Okay. So uh, I'm, I'm curious about this, this losing this grip on reality or this common understanding that would normally underlie any dialogue or cooperation. When you were, were interviewing, um, these these officials for your for your piece did you come across an example they gave or a situation that came up where they cited as an example of this lost grip on reality or this moment they were confronted with this notion um it goes back a while but they were um um I think a lot of the speakers said that um, because dialogue was so poor, they were uncertain about intent. They were also uncertain that we were, as the West or as uh, uh, our own political country, uh, political establishment in our own political uh, in our own countries, whether we were grappling with the right serious challenges or whether we were hitting ourselves with false challenges. Um, that came up quite a bit. Um, and, and, and it got me basically convinced that this was an important topic that needed to be, uh, to be, uh, studied more and to, to, to be, um, made uh, to, so that people were made aware of it more. And I think the, the way we go forward with this is we, 
we go back to engaging with people. And interestingly, the, uh, I wanted to, to bring that in also, the, the faith communities have also a nice uh, input in this because they, they have a long experience of interfaith dialogue. Yeah. And one of the research uh, piece I looked at uh, was saying that uh, to enter in political dialogue, one has to accept the, the, the notion that there's a common destiny between the two sides who are engaging. And that after the dialogue is done, um, there, the, the interlocutor will still be here. Uh, so the, the, the sense that, uh, you know, talking to the people who might not wish you well is important. And these, these forces will be there after the talk has taken place. There is also a, a requirement to engage with authenticity. Um, uh, so th there are a number of, of, of um, requirements to engage in successful dialogue. Time was also mentioned many, many times by, by many of the speakers I engaged with. Time, in other words, diplomats are always on the, on the go. They're always rushing. They're mm -hmm. always, um, uh, you know, problem solving quickly uh, in, in a sense of urgency. Time is a huge uh, variable in this. And, and uh, longer bilaterals, longer trips, longer state visits are very important elements in how to deal with this. So that, that, that's very interesting uh, that you mentioned. That, and thank you for sharing that insight. Because for, for people listening, I think, uh, you've been able to access a world and a sphere that for the rest of us is, is otherwise unaccessible. Um, but then I think it's then especially important to now to drag it back down to earth, so to speak. So for your average listener, uh, someone like me, uh, why is it important for us to understand this notion, to understand what's happening with post-truth at the level you've been talking about it at? I think it's important for, for any one of us to, um, to not stay in the bubble. You know, we're all um, so, uh, um, there's, a, there's a tendency for all of us uh, enslaved in social media uh, yeah. or, or each with our social media habits to listen to the people we agree with, to reinforce our own biases and all this. This isn't actually what uh, living is all about, <laughs> I would suggest. And there's a, a great um, value and a great uh, excitement in going out of the bubble and talking to people who disagree with you, uh, engaging in critical thinking, and, and, uh, and being more grounded in reality than in, in than a, a delusion or a, a self-confirming uh, sort of uh, environment. You know, where, where what I think is always right because I'm only reading what people people who agree with me um so getting out of the bubble is a is a requirement for states for states person uh, state statesmen and women but um but it's also a requirement for for each and every one of us i, I think uh, because life is much more savory and much more exciting when you're in it for real <laughs> i i couldn't say. agree more i think um definitely you you've placed the onus on us and i and i i think that's maybe a a nice uh sentiment to to utter as we as we slowly move to the conclusion here because uh as we started on a philosophical note it makes sense to end on one and yeah i guess to a degree a great degree it is the responsibility of all of us to be aware so whether we need a, a year like 2016 to to make us wise about the the large societal impact uh that can come as a result of this or if it is a more day-to-day -day reality 
that we need to clue into uh, and see that that is happening also on a smaller scale um, rather than just these big events. Indeed. Uh, Damien, thank you so much for taking the time to join us, uh, to share your thoughts and to um, bring your work uh, to life. Uh, it was been, it's been, been really exciting and important. I think people listening will also uh, be able to tap into and relate actually to, to what we're talking about. I find post-truth to be one of those topics that is relevant to varying degrees, I think, to everyone. So thank you so much for, for being able to, to, to impart your thoughts with us today. Uh, to everyone listening, thank you for tuning in uh, to our second episode. And um, we will look forward to having you join us next time. Damien, thank you so much. Uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you very much and uh, best of luck with everything. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.